John chapter 17, John chapter 11, 17 through 46. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come, where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away that stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou heardest me always, and because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loosed him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the thing which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And thus is the reading of God's word. And all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again we pray thee that you would open up the scriptures unto us, that we might indeed behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Um, the title of this morning's sermon is The Dead Hear His Voice. The Dead Hear His Voice. And so I, I wanted us to, uh, the reason I read from Philippians uh, chapter 1 there is I want us to appreciate that that might very well have been written by Lazarus himself. If you uh, read again the section that I read, I think you'll appreciate that it applies very much to uh, Lazarus' situation. In verse 21 there, we read, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So clearly we can appreciate that Lazarus, in his death, gained being present in the Spirit with the Lord upon the death of his body. That is a far better place to be, as we talked about last week. It is a place of no more pain and suffering. It is a place of no tears, no sin, corruption of any kind a place where the former things of this world are not brought to mind. There's no emotional turmoil there. There's no frustrations or wants of any kind. There's no sense that something else must yet be accomplished by us, no sense that something has been left undone. That's that nagging sense we get when we think we've forgotten to do something, that we're responsible for something, that there will be um, ill consequences for us failing to do something, that is all gone from him. There is no sense of time whatsoever. He is simply living in the present. And in an occasion where there is time no more, as the scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 10, he's living in, under those con, uh, conditions, enjoying that which is simply before him, which is Christ himself. Simply living and loving in the presence of our Lord, without the encumbrances of sin in the flesh. It's no longer subject to the fleshy lusts, which war against his soul. He's no longer wrestling with the principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's no longer at variance with the ways of this world. And all of these things I think we can all identify with and appreciate because that's where we presently are. But it is certainly a good thing to serve the Lord and be his agents and ministers in this world as we go forth and preach the gospel. But without a doubt for us, it is gain to be in Christ because then we're in the presence of the Lord. We are then in the presence of him whom we love, him who died for us that he might enjoy and we might enjoy eternal fellowship with him. So it's a twofold blessing. One, our labors are set behind but far greater than that, of course, is we are in the presence of God. And that is what we all desire to do, is to be in his personal presence, absent the encumbrance of this flesh. And so Lazarus, I would have thought, was no longer subject to death. So the first time I read through this, I would have thought that Lazarus had fought the good fight. He had finished his course, having kept the faith. I would have thought that Lazarus would have received his crown of righteousness, a crown that is given to all those that love the appearing of the Lord. That comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But not so for Lazarus. He's not done. It was more needful for Martha and for Mary and for the Jews that came to Jerusalem and for us today that Lazarus not remain in the flesh, but rather return to the flesh. For God would use the death of Lazarus to glorify himself and bring great comfort to everyone that has ears to hear. For in the death and resurrection of Lazarus, the Lord would teach us several things. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Lazarus, the Lord is going to teach us several things, including what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It says, Therefore unto you it is given 
in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Lazarus is going to suffer for Christ's sake as a living epistle of God's love, of God's grace, and his mercy. You can read this in John chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, after we read about this greatest of God's miracle, except for that which took place through the cross, we read that the chief priests and took counsel together how they might put Lazarus to death. So, um, so grand uh, and so uh, public was this miracle that it was creating consternation amongst the scribes and the Pharisees who felt their political um, power, their political influence and arena threatened that they wanted to kill Lazarus in addition to Christ. They wanted to put them both to death. Now, the reason, and I, as I just mentioned, there many of the Jews were believing on him, um, and so we can expect, as we apply this to our own lives, that the greater your ministry is, the more effectual it is, I think the more resistance you're going to come upon. You're going to find that Satan is going to uh, give you greater attention to undermine you, cause you to stumble, cause you to trip in sin, and he'll do everything he can to pull down your ministry um, but, of course, he can never do anything absent the Lord's permission. Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He requires God's permission to do anything, and that's set before us very obviously in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, that Satan can go only so far, no farther than God would permit him. And so he is an agent and tool of God to sharpen our faith so that we would rely more and more upon God and less and less upon ourselves. So... Uh, Lazarus, his, his resurrection uh, proves to be a, a, uh, a catalyst of uh, persecution that is brought upon himself as these uh, Pharisees endeavor to, these chief priests rather, consult about how they might put Lazarus also to death. So among those things that the Lord is teaching us here with respect to the um, resurrection of Lazarus is that which he taught about himself back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, in verses 24 through 29, the Lord says of himself, he says in uh, verse 24 in John chapter 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words, he that heareth my word, rather, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. To not come into condemnation means you're not subject to the second death. The second death, of course, is where somebody is cast into the lake of fire, eternally separated from God. Verse 25, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is. Present tense, right now when Jesus is walking around. The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead, that would be those who are dead in trespasses and sin, shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. They shall hear the preaching of the gospel. They shall hear Christ through the preacher or through whoever happens to be witnessing to that individual, and they shall live. And Jesus demonstrates this in a, in a very real way, uh, in so much as that when he calls Lazarus, Lazarus hears the voice of the Son of God and lives. We see that literally taking place, speaking of the spiritual reality of what takes place when God goes forth through his preachers, through his witnesses, and preaches the gospel to anybody. If anybody hears that, they're hearing from God. They're not hearing from you. Verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Again, Jesus is going to prove this, respecting himself, when he calls Lazarus back to life. 
In verse 28 of John chapter 5, he continues, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, future tense, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good, to do good is simply to believe on the gospel. He's not talking about good works here. Those that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And this, of course, he's speaking of the second coming, his second coming, and that is also typified here when Jesus speaks with a loud voice, says that in the scripture, a loud voice, calling forth Lazarus from the literal grave. And the Lord is um, alluding to what is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians about the second coming of Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. The Lord, of course, we know, has taken on the form of the flesh. He stepped out of his glory. He's come down from heaven. This is his first coming. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's also teaching us here about his second coming and about the resurrection um, at that time. And the reason I say that is when the Lord comes and does that, and we all happen to be dead in the graves, where is the next place we're going to find ourselves? We're going to find ourselves supping at the marriage lamb of the Lord. And the Lord teaches us about that in Revelation 19.9. speaks of the marriage supper of the lamb. And if we continue to read here, we can appreciate that that's where Lazarus is in the next chapter. That's the next place we find Lazarus. In in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read that he is um, at the table with the Lord. In verse 2, it says, And they made him a supper, speaking of Christ, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. That's where we can expect to find ourselves. When the Lord comes with a shout and we come from the grave, we can expect to be supping with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, when the Lord says in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, when he says that I am the resurrection and the life, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In verse 26, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He is reiterating the points he made back in chapter 5. Believe now, if you believe now, you are not subject to condemnation, which is the second death. You will not be cast into the lake of fire where the smoke of people's torment ascendeth up forever and ever. You will be given a new glorified body which will never suffer corruption. Another thing we learn here and with respect to this miracle is it typifies that part of the salvation process experienced by every Christian when they are translated from darkness to life, from death to to life, And I think we can appreciate that it's dark inside the tomb. So we're seeing these things typified as well, that we're being translated from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And um, this is what the Lord is, speaks of in John chapter 25 when he speaks of people who are dead in trespasses and sin, hearing the Lord and living. So this is the part that, this is the, uh, what is similar to the um, salvation and um, quickening of every Christian uh, that takes place when they hear the gospel. And this resurrection, the book of Revelation refers to as the first resurrection. That's Revelation 20, verse 5. The first resurrection is when you hear the gospel and your spirit is quickened. The second resurrection would be the one at the last day when we come out of the grave and, and get our, when our bodies come out of the grave and we receive glorified bodies. Now, if we consider what the Lord has set before us here when he called forth Lazarus from the grave, we should appreciate that he was dead. 
Very simply, we should appreciate that he was dead. He could do nothing for himself, and he most certainly could not hear. Can you imagine trying to preach the gospel to Lazarus at this point? And this is the experience that everybody has when they're trying to share the gospel. They're speaking to somebody who is spiritually dead. They're dead in trespasses and sin. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that, that the things that we're sharing with a natural man are foolishness to them. They cannot understand them. They cannot appreciate them. They cannot apprehend them, not without um, God imputing those truths to their heart. So obviously there was nothing that anybody at the gravesite could do to help Lazarus. There's nothing they could do to profit him. There was no life in him. He was dead for four days. He stinketh. He was most certainly not in a position to help himself. If you go through this section of John chapter 11 and count how many times they say that Lazarus was dead, it's quite remarkable. Both sisters say he's dead. The Jews that came to comfort him, some of them, that's, they kind of carp on the Lord and say, could he not have kept him from dying? That's in verse 37. Verse 44, or verse 41 says he's dead. Verse 44 says he's dead. So there are enough places in here that when enough witnesses that, yes, Lazarus was dead. Everybody understood it. Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead four days. Um, so again, this typifies the natural man. The natural man is dead in trespasses and sin. And so we can appreciate that everything that takes place here, again, is for our benefit, that we would rejoice in the Lord and have faith in him. So whereas he was dead, he could not hear so when Jesus spoke loudly, he was speaking for the benefit of everybody around him that they would appreciate that it was Jesus who was speaking. It was Jesus who was calling Lazarus by name and that it was Jesus who was calling him forth from the grave. Now, I know we've all experienced this when we're speaking to somebody that does not speak English. Why we have it in our head that if we simply speak a language that they cannot understand louder it will help them, um, and it, it, it doesn't. And I had somebody do this to me. I was at the airport. They were asking directions for a particular um, flight, and they spoke French. And it got to the point where I thought they were going to shout at me. <laughs> I'm like, well, I didn't speak French before you came to me. I don't understand it now. But this is what people do. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus spoke loud, not for Lazarus, but for everybody around. He was obviously speaking through the Spirit to Lazarus, and that is what he heard. Lazarus heard God. So um, just as it was for Lazarus, it is that way for all of us who are saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the work of God alone. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In John 6, 29, the Lord uh, helps us to appreciate this. He says, this is the work of God. Salvation is a work, no question about it, but it's a work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Faith, uh, the act of believing, that's a work too, and it's a work of God. This is a work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 lays it out very clearly for us. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. Faith is not from you. Faith is from God. Jesus just said that. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift, not of works, lest any, lest any man should boast. And again, Ephesians 1.11 tells us that we are predestinated according to the purpose of him, that according to the purpose of God, who worketh all things 
after the counsel of his own will. Our salvation is God's purpose. He purposed it, and it is his will. Jesus already told us that in John chapter 1, verse 13. Speaking of people that are born again, people that are born from above, he says they're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus calling Lazarus forth from the grave was due to his love for Lazarus, a love that he had from before the foundation of the world. It was according to God's will and eternal purpose, just as it is for every one of us. It was not because of Lazarus's genealogical bloodline. It is not of blood. He was dead at this point. His bloodline could not avail him at this point. It never can avail anyone. It most certainly wasn't because of something Lazarus desired, something associated with his will. He had no will. He's dead. Men are sinners by nature. They do not desire the things of God. So even if he had been walking around alive, there's nothing in man that would desire the things of God. Men, as the Lord's going to teach us here as we get further into John, men hate God. They hate Christ, and they hate the one who sent him. And I've lost count how many times Jesus has said that his Father has sent him. So men hate Christ because they hate the one who sent him. They hate God. Men are naturally um, predisposed against God. They are sinners by nature, and men are antagonistic towards God. They are dead in trespasses and sin. That Lazarus came forth from the grave was not because of the will of those around the grave. He was dead. There's nothing anybody could say or do to impart life to a dead man, no matter how enthusiastically or persuasively they might endeavor to preach to him or to convince him. You can't do it. Um, the appreciation and acknowledgement of who Christ is does not come from the intellect of a man. You cannot convince a man that Jesus is God. You not, cannot convince him that the only solution to his sin is to be found in trusting in Christ and the imputation of God's righteousness to them. Although we endeavor to do that, and we should do that, you should know that you can't do it, that you have to trust exclusively in the work of God in their lives, and that he will um, impress the truths that you're sharing with that individual upon their heart. It has to come from him. You cannot convince them that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That Lazarus heard and came forth from the grave was due to the exclusive work of God. And that is so clearly set before us here because Jesus is the only one who speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus hears and he gets up and comes forth from the, um, from the grave. And what we see here is a wonderful demonstration by Jesus Christ, who is the Almighty. He is the brightness of God's glory and the expressed image of his person. So when we see God is, in fact, glorified when Jesus um, did what he did. And Jesus himself was glorified. And we talked about that last week, the relationship between those two, where he is glorified and where God is glorified. So we can appreciate that um, Christ came to Lazarus as he comes to everyone that is born again. Every born-again Christian is born again because of the work of God in them. God either drew them to themselves, but in this case we see that he comes to Lazarus. And Lazarus, like every one of us, was a dead man, dead in trespasses and sin, and he was encumbered by the filthy rags of self-righteousness, which covered his stinking flesh, which, of course, was corrupted by sin. That is the natural state of all men. And it was in that state, 
under those conditions and circumstances that Jesus spoke the words of life to him because in Christ is life. And so Lazarus came forth, forth a demonstration of God's victory over death, God's victory over the grave, God's victory over he who has the power of death, which is Satan, God's victory over sin, and God's victory over the flesh. God is victorious over all of these things, and we saw that manifest when Christ did what he did. And again, he did all of this for our benefit, that we might appreciate and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that we might trust in him and in him alone, and that we might never look to ourselves or never look to another man as the means and agency by which we might curry favor or merit favor with God. It's all through Christ. And so as we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 24, that it was more needful for us that Lazarus abide in the flesh. It was for our furtherance and the joy of faith, verse 25 and 26, that our rejoicing may be more abundant. And Jesus Christ. So his sisters and the Jews that came there, those that believed on the Lord continuously, and for us who have witnessed this miracle, if you will, by reading the scriptures and God impressing it's the veracity of it on our hearts, that we might have more joy in Christ. It's a faith-building um, process, and I appreciate that. Um, and one of the things, again, I mentioned last week is uh, not one word is spoken by Lazarus, either Lazarus, the one in Luke, which is different, and this one here. Not one word is spoken by Lazarus. I have no idea how he felt about this process, but I think that one of the things we need to appreciate from this is that we are all the work of God, and that we are the clay, and that he is the potter, and that we should be ever willing and desirous as his purchased possession to do whatever he would have us to do, however unpleasant we might think it would be. We have to know that everything he does is for our good, not only us individually, but for the church collectively. All things work together for good to them that love God. And so we have to be willing to uh, make ourselves a, a loving sacrifice for God. We have to be willing to lay ourselves upon the altar and uh, submit ourselves always to his will, knowing that that's what's best for everything, and it's indeed for his glory. Romans 8, 18 tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be cared, compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Uh, the Lord is ever working towards that which is good for us. Now, I want us to appreciate a couple of things here before I, I close out. And uh, that is this. If you look at verses, uh, let's say, verse 32 and on down to verse 37, verse 38. Now I'm going to read those there. I talked a little bit about that last week, but I want to just add a few more things to it. In John 11:32, it says, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. As I mentioned last week, we developed a little insight by looking at, at Joseph in terms of how he had tried his brothers with the intent of reconciling them to the Father. And he knew how hard that was going to be for them to be. And it, it troubled him to do so. It was difficult on Joseph, and he wept over that process. And we can appreciate that the Lord does that here as well. But there's another uh, reason that, that he's weeping here, and that has to do with the hardness of men's hearts. The hardness of men's hearts. We are thick-headed, and the Lord is doing a great miracle here, 
And there are some who will believe and some who will not believe. And to not believe in the face of a miracle like this is really very damning uh, to an individual. And we read about this all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. We pick it up in uh, Ezekiel 33 and uh, some other verses in the Bible, uh, Matthew 23, where we see that the Lord weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus came and he preached and he did great miracles that, to the intent that they would understand and appreciate who he was. In Matthew chapter 23, um, after he indicts the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's a, a speech where I think we can appreciate that he's angry with them. Um, he says to them, Woe unto them, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, ye blind guides, um, thou blind Pharisee. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He hits them up with hypocrisy time and time again. There's obviously he's angry at them, and the Lord indeed can have righteous anger. And then in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under, chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. What is going to happen in the history of Israel? The Romans are going to come and absolutely destroy it. Over in Luke chapter 19, it's um, similar to this, but it actually uses the words Jesus weeping. In verse 41 of Luke 19, he says, And when he was come near, meaning the city, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belongeth unto thy peace, and now they are hid from thine eyes. He has come to them, he has preached to them, they have not believed, it's going to be hid from them. Verse 43, For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. God has visited you, and you didn't see it, you didn't appreciate it, all of the evidence was set before you, and you didn't, um, you didn't believe. So what are the consequences of that? Destruction. And that grieves the heart of the Lord. In Ezekiel 33.11, Ezekiel 33.11, the Lord says, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? It breaks the Lord's heart that they do not believe on him. He has given them every opportunity to do so, but they do not. And so their destruction is sure when the Lord comes and they fail to appreciate the day of their visitation. But it, but it breaks his heart to do that. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And this is something, a characteristic and attribute of God that we really should appreciate. You should thank yourselves that I am not God because I would take pleasure in the death of the wicked, anybody that would oppose my will. And I don't say that flippantly. I say that as a, as, a, as a sinner because that's how men think. But that's not how God thinks. He endures himself great contradiction of sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says that, I think it's in Romans twelve three about great contradiction of sinners. Um, he comes to them in John 11 there, and some of them carp on him and like, hey, 
you healed the blind, why not keep this man from dying? In other words, we think you should do something differently than what you're doing, and maybe you're not as gracious and merciful as we think you should be. And so it is with men as, as they look at God. If you go all the way back to John, excuse me, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says there about the Lord, he's getting ready to um, um, come to Noah, have him build the ark, and he's getting ready to destroy all flesh in the earth. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. It grieved him in his heart. Now, we know that the plan of God is set out from before the foundation of the world. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how men are going to react, but nevertheless, it still grieves him. We, um, if you have children and think back on your disciplinary days, um, I think you can appreciate that you can love a child, you can be angry with a child, uh, and you can be grieved in your heart while you're punishing them all at the same time. Um, and so it is with the Lord. He's got to do what he has to do. He, he is a righteous God, and he's going to punish sin. He will cast them into the lake of fire. But he certainly takes no pleasure, and it. it grieves him to do so. And so I think we can appreciate that in John chapter 11 here. talks about him groaning. talks about him, him weeping. And so, uh, again, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Remember, he is fully man and fully God. It does say in him in Isaiah 53 that he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. He is a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. And so we see this manifest itself here on this occasion where we see that he weeps and that he groans in his heart. One, the first groaning, we see him groaning in the spirit up in verse 33 because of everyone's weeping. And then in verse 38, it says, Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself. And he's groaning there because of the, what the men have said of him in verse 37. Um, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Well, yes, he could have. But what he's doing, and he's keeping him not from the first death, but from the second death. And that's the one that is far more important. But these are things that we as people uh, don't appreciate because... Um, because our, our spiritual insight is limited uh, by uh, what insight the Lord has given us. And so to appreciate this, to understand this, we always, of course, must look um, towards Christ for all things. So I'm going to conclude with there. Uh, again, I want us to appreciate that what took place, takes place here with respect to Lazarus is typifies our salvation. The Lord has set some basic uh, truths here before us, but we should ever appreciate that the Lord does the things that he does for our benefit, certainly, and for his glory. Um, and that men fail to appreciate that. But uh, we should not fail to appreciate that. So we'll just say amen at this point. Amen. amen.